And there was a moment I spoke to one of the traditional players. I said to them, listen, all I want you to do is build a mobile app that gathers the data in real time. And all you need is a couple of NLP people who's just going to analyze it. Why are you guys just not doing that? And that night I decided I'm just going to do it. There is a buyer for the data. There's a seller for the data and no one is making the market. So next day I told my boss that I'm really sorry. I love my job, but I'm going to quit because I really want to create this platform. But then, you know, after a few times listening to me, he actually became the first Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiama Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of product, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! Hi, guys. Welcome to For the Love of Product. I'm really excited about our guest today. We've got Tuche Balut, who's joining us as the founder of Street Bees. Um, for those of you who don't know what Street Bees is, they are a customer insight startup. Um, maybe you could not even call them a startup anymore because they've recently taken on their Series B. Um, but they have invested or they have wooed investors over the years from uh, investors like Atomico, brands like Unilever use their platform. Their mission is really to connect companies that need data with people on the ground who can provide it so that those businesses can make better decisions, do so in real time, and really cover that anywhere around the world. Um, very exciting. It's just re- recently raised $40 million, uh, from Europe's leading venture capital firms with a round led by Lakestar. Um, and the company itself was founded in 2015 on the idea of letting people around the world record their videos, their photos, their texts, and the reasons behind their purchase decisions to bring that richness of consumer insights to companies so that they can make the the solid business decision that drives their business forward. Uh, Tuche was recently acknowledged as one of the top 50 women um, who are most influential in the startup and venture capital space across Europe. And we are so pleased to have her here with us today. Uh, Tuche, where are you you, uh, zooming in from today? Hi, Tiama. I'm actually in London, uh, pretty much in central London. We are still in a lockdown, so not going back to the offices yet. Fantastic. And tell me about uh, Street Bees organization pre and and post uh, COVID. Were you guys generally in one office, one location? Have you really had to evolve uh, kind of where people work and how? Yeah, absolutely. I think we were on the luckier side of the you know pandemic crisis everyone has gone through last year. Strip is already is a quite a decentralized organization. What we do is gathering data and real life observations from all around the world. So we already had teams all around the world. We had people, you know, on the ground in China helping with community building. We had people in Philippines or Vietnam who help us with data classification and uh, tagging, et cetera. So we are really used to working remotely. But one thing that, of course, you take for granted is the team spirit side. We had an office in London, one in Lisbon, and people would get together, have drinks, spend time together, right? Like workshops and sessions. And that means so much, especially in a higher growth company that you can just jump into your room and draw things on a whiteboard. So obviously all of a sudden last year in March, we all had to work from home and we haven't been back to the office since then. And although our work is completely doable functionally with just a laptop, really, wherever you are, we all miss the team side of things. 
Yeah, I think you're not alone in that, but it sounds like you're one of those companies that was lucky to be well positioned to take advantage of some of the trends that COVID brought about. Um, so, so that's great. And oftentimes we, we speak to founders on this business, uh, on this podcast that are really looking at how, you know, COVID has changed their growth journey. You obviously recently in October of last year announced this series B, what was the, what was the kind of pitch uh, that you gave to um, potential investors at that, at that round and how did COVID play in that storyline? To be honest, uh, Tiama, actually, COVID didn't play so much of a role in that. It's an interesting story because we continued to grow very strongly before COVID and after COVID. And we were in a very cash-strong position as well because our unit economics is very strong. And we weren't really thinking about raising. And, you know, when even we thought about shall we do a Series B, a lot of people were telling us that, you surely want to wait until, you know, the whole COVID things clear up. We do have regular meetings with many venture capital firms to build relationships. I always tell people choosing an investor, especially a lead investor, is like marriage. You better date and flirt for a long time until you make your decision because there's no going back, really. Actually, divorce might be easier than, uh, you know, trying to part ways with an with investor who is on your cap table. But jokes aside, it's a very important relationship that you need to build over time. So we've been always, you know, keeping in touch. And a couple of the key funds we are talking to came forward and said that you're growing extremely fast. And with more resources, you can continue to hire more people into technology, increase your market coverage, increase your sales force. Um, and that would even help the company grow faster. So why are you not considering doing a raise right now? And then that made a lot of sense to us. So we started only conversations with a couple of very few chosen partners. And then we made the decision to go forward because, frankly, waiting for another six months, nine months wouldn't make any difference from our perspective. What the pitches and why the investment community has always been very excited about street bees is that I think one of the reasons is that there are, all, there are a lot of um, interesting technology companies coming up, but it's very rare that there is one with the potential of creating a multi-billion dollar platform with a deep proprietary technology. And it's even more rare for that to happen in Europe, right? So we, I think, fit a very small group of companies which are working on a problem that's going to be worth billions and billions of dollars to solve, and it's done with a defensible uh, technology with barriers to entry. And the simplest way to think about SweetBees is that I always give people the example, think about, you, you may be too young to remember this, but think about the experience of internet before Google, right? I remember it. It was very painful. You would have to remember the websites and you would like, we used to use bookmarks and, you know, actually Excel sheets to remember the sites. But jokes aside, what Google did is it's indexed, classified, tagged every single thing that exists in the in, on the internet so that when you need it, you just go to a search box and boom, you find it. Speed Business today doing exactly the same thing for offline life moments. Google has done a fantastic job on the online site. But actually, 80-90% of our lives that are still happening offline are not available to search through. It's all in your brain, basically. So what we are doing is with street pieces, using the app that's with you all the time, 
you turn your real life moments into a data point, right? So as a first layer, we gather millions and millions of real life observations when you are eating, drinking, socializing, going to exercise, driving, whatever it is. And then we keep them in a data warehouse. And then there's a second layer of the street piece technology where we have our proprietary deep neural networks that interprets that mega scale data we have in the data warehouse. And on top of that sits a knowledge graph that turns all that interpreted unstructured data into business intelligence to answer specific business questions, right? So in the same way Google made online world searchable, we are making the entire offline world a searchable data source for consumer companies, for anyone who wants to, needs to understand what people want. Just to give an example for everyone's benefit, um, this can vary from, for example, when you are feeling a bit lonely and down during lockdown and watching Netflix, what exact ice cream you are really enjoying and how do you talk about the texture of that ice cream is something you can search through in our database, but also all the way to how people's anxiety during COVID is influencing consumer confidence index, economic growth in that uh, particular country or in particular category is also something now you can search through the Streetbeast platform. I love it. Um, and I think it's a really great, simple way to break down what you guys do for our audience that will find that uh, very useful. So the semantic understanding of the data that you're able to generate, right? The way that you're able to kind of, as you kind of drew the parallel to Google and understanding every data point and then being able to make sense of that with the the, the knowledge graph. Where, when did that come into your, your journey, right? Your product journey? Was that something you understood was going to be important from the very beginning? Or is it something that evolved as you spoke to customers and kind of found your product market fit? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question because we haven't actually started with a product idea. We started with a problem um, because I was actually experiencing that problem in my previous job um, as a strategy consultant. So I was on the buy side of data and we were working with the with massive companies from, you know, like the Unilevers and Hershey's to um, Just Eat, for example, at the time, pre-IPO. And we always needed to understand what consumers want what they currently do, and where are the needs, basically, that we can address. And it's really inter it was very interesting to me that on most data sets, that's like credit card transactions, point of sales data, um, you know, macroeconomic data, you get time series, which are super important in predictions and modeling. When it comes to the most important data point, which is the consumer experience, what they want, what they need, and how it's changing, how the habits are changing, you have to write a quick survey, right? With multiple choice options. And there is a spot analysis, there are no time series, and you need to also rely and trust people know, and they can articulate what they need for you, which is of course not possible. If I ask you, for example, when was the last time you ate McDonald's? Most likely you're not gonna be giving us the true answer. Not because you are lying, because you can't remember, let alone remembering your emotions in that very moment. What was your exact context? Who was with you? What time of the day it was? You're just not going to be able to remember any of this. So unfortunately, surveys are the worst way of finding out about what people want. So we wanted to create this platform where the real life moments are happening. We can just capture it as and when it happens. 
and then turn it into time series, basically, because it, the observation is done on an always-on basis. We haven't even thought about the product at that stage in terms of how are we going to actually collect that data? How is it going to be analyzed? How is it going to be visualized? That all came step-by-step step later as we onboarded customers. Excellent. And I mean, 2015, that was a point in the industry's development where things like, you know, ad tech was changing the type of data that you could get for the people you wanted to target for ads. And people were starting to buy ads, not through the media as a lens to reach, right, somebody, right? So if somebody wanted to sell uh, golf clubs, they were no longer needing to buy ads on golf.com, but they could understand these crumbs of data around the internet that existed and kind of try to marry those with, as you said, different levels of consumer insights. But I know that around you know, 2013, 2015, people were really having a hard time figuring out how to do that, even in the online world, right? So what made you think that you were going to be able to try and crack something similar of creating this offline, real understanding of all these moments that are happening and help that be interpreted in a way that answers those brands' questions around, well, what do consumers want, right? What do they feel? How can you? I mean, that's a huge undertaking. What gave you the confidence that outside of knowing that it was a problem you would like to solve, that you could do that? It's such an interesting question. I never thought about it that way. I think to me, it's more about, is someone willing to pay for it, right? Because if there is enough money to be thrown at it, you will solve the problem, right? It's just a matter of, is there a market? And it was so obvious to me that there is a market, there is demand, there are not only millions, billions of dollars being spent, that's enough to be able to build the right technology um, on it. The two factors though, that was already known to me, which I knew is going to make this possible is that, you know, if there's a willingness to pay, what are the other two blockers that can happen? The first one is that the users might not wanna share. So that's something that you really need to think about and have, a, have an access to that information. And I think I was in a very lucky place um, with my background when I was doing my PhD and working with World Bank. I used to do ethnographic research on the ground, one-on-one -on -one interviews. My, my topic was on poverty alleviation. And we were basically speaking to families who are living under a dollar a day and listening you know, intently in depth how they describe their lives, right? And it was a really good learning for me. This is like many, many, many years ago. And it was a really good learning for me that how much people actually enjoy sharing as long as you are listening in the right way and you are offering them solutions. So we knew that it was an inherent human trait wanting to share as long as you are treating their data with privacy, with respect, and really giving them back something in return for, for sharing. And this is what we thought that we are going to build the world's first fair data exchange platform, right? Where people are going to share, first of all, anonymously. Their names are completely detached from the information they're providing. So it can never go back and, you know, upset them in any way. Um, and they will be compensated for their contributions. Now, there are a lot of businesses which are using data as a sub-product from Google's and Facebook's to dozens and dozens of other businesses. 
but the user is not in control of how their data is being used, for what purpose, and they are not getting compensated for that. So we wanted to change both. We wanted to make sure that user is always in control. So you share what you want to share, when you want to share, and you know exactly what are we going to do with that data. And secondly, you get basically fairly compensated for your contributions on that data as well. And I said at the beginning, there are, there are two potential blockers. So that would be one. And then the other one is, well, is it technologically just an impossible problem to solve? I strongly believe there is no such thing. It's just going to be a question of how many years are we talking about and how much cash do you have um, to invest in it? What I did also know in my previous job was that the natural language processing was moving quite fast. Um, and it was allowing us already to do topic modeling, for example, based on unstructured data. So there was enough early signs to have faith that not only us, but a lot of other players like OpenAI continue to work on this problem. Collectively, of course, we can solve the problem of understanding what people want from unstructured data that they shared with us in, in the form of a conversation. Right. And when did you get confidence, right? You're talking about usability risk right? Viability risk, like, is it feasible to build? Um, how soon after realizing that there was willingness to pay, did you make a decision that, yep, this is worth us starting to, this is worth us starting to build and actually deliver this product in a repeatable, scalable way? Well, interestingly, you know, that was definitely a light bulb moment where I got quite, uh, you know, tired of traditional solutions in the market. And there was a moment I spoke to one of the traditional players. I said to them, listen, all I want you to do is build a mobile app like that gathers the data in real time, right? And all you need is a couple of like NLP people who's just going to analyze it. Like, why are you guys just not doing that? And I was quite upset that they, are, they weren't even considering it because we, we had the willingness to pay. We were going to pay for it if they just did it, basically. And that night I decided I'm just going to do it. Because I felt like that there is a buyer for the data, there's a seller for the data, and no one is making the market. So next day, I told my boss that I'm really sorry, I love my job, but I'm going to quit because I really want to create this platform. And he told I'm just having a bad week at work, and I'm thinking of quitting. But then, you know, after a few times listening to me, he actually became the first investor uh, in the business. That's an amazing story. I love that. That's really good. Um, so what was your life like at that point? Like what was happening in your world? I mean, this is a courageous thing, right? We have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are currently founders or they're early in their founder's journey. But we also have a lot of people who are chief product officers or senior in their product's journey. And uh, statistically, that group is often um, likely to make the leap into founding, right? So for anyone who's listening and thinking this, like TJ is like a superwoman, I couldn't do that. Like, what was your life like? Were you just sitting around, had tons of time to, you know, put into this? Like, did you have all the, the you know, support channels that you needed to start a business or was this scary? Yeah, it was an absolute nightmare. There's, there's no such thing as a, as a superwoman. Absolutely not. Um, I think the, the gist of the story is that if you really want to do something, you will make it work. So there is no reason to think too much. And I think to some people, maybe that comes a little bit easier um, in the sense that, you know, once I made the decision, my thinking was, it, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? I will give this a go for a year if it really doesn't work. And I always had actually revenue targets for it every year. But I said to myself, if we don't reach as a minimum this revenue, 
I'm going to go, go get a job basically, because I can't continue to, um, you know, spend time on something that doesn't make money. Um, but even then, and we have been, we have been very lucky, very successful over the last six years. So we did hit all those revenue targets I had in mind, uh, to make sure I continue with the business. But even then, it was extremely, extremely painful and difficult for sure. I'm just to give you some examples. I, I quit my job and then I did think that I did not think this through. How am I going to actually pay rent in the next couple of months? I had to move out of my flat um, in central London and then started living with a friend for about, I think, four months. Um, and that saved me a lot of money. And we had a very small team. And frankly, I was working probably 20 hour days. So there wasn't a lot of time to go out and like do anything else anyway. And it was very hard. And there were a lot of times, but to me, it was all about that. You already know if it doesn't work, it's just one year. And there is no point in keep doubting and keep questioning, right? Of course, you're going to have some awful days, weeks, sometimes months that are very, very difficult. But I wouldn't go back and question about, okay, oh, did I make a mistake? Now I'm committed. I'm committed for a year. I made the decision. I know what my milestone I need to hit. So let's not just, you know, create drama about every day. Like, is this working? Is this not working? You will know in a year if it's working or it's not working. Until then, just keep working hard, basically. I think that's great uh, and very practical advice to our listeners, right? So chunk it up, right? Don't think about this as like, wow, I just jumped off of the deep end and everything that was stable and reliable will never be there again, you're giving it a year or you're giving it two years, right? And you kind of chunk it into more manageable concepts. And it can be very small targets, by the way. Like my target for the first year was only 200K. That's what I said. The business needs to make 200,000 pounds revenue in the first year, right? Because that's enough of a symbol to show someone sees value in it. We ended up making a lot more than that. We ended up registering clients like Coca-Cola, Unilever in the first year. So by the end of year one, absolutely, there was no question mark in my mind about demand. We still did have question marks around, not the supply. Supply was strong as well. But anything in between is obviously quite complicated problem that you are solving. So it was quite challenging. Absolutely. So um, one of the things that often founders uh, we talk about on the show is that it's difficult to have the willingness to pay conversation, but it's so important to have it um, early on. And I always like to ask people who really focused on that as their journey, you know, any tips or tricks for people that are embarking on that piece now, right? Whether it's about a product extension or a new segment that they're opening, or if they're really early and they're sort of figuring out, you know, the first thing that they're going to do, the first problem they're going to solve. Yeah, no, completely. This is very cultural, you know, I find it actually quite interesting. Yeah. I lived in many countries before. I'm Turkish originally and lived in India, Australia, US before the UK. And in some cultures, that's actually a lot harder uh, in, in, than, than in some others. But what I learned is that if you ask the right way, it's an absolutely accepted, actually expected conversation to have. Um, and the way we do that, and we always uh, tell our sales team that is an important you know, conversation to have as we are going through new stages, new product launches, you explain the solution, right? Everyone knows that we are talking about a commercial solution. Of course, there is going to be a price tag, right? Everyone expects it. 
And once you get people excited about what they are about to get, then it's a great time to talk about, by the way, for like, let's say you are a B2B solution for one market, this, is, this would cost around 100,000 pounds, right? For one year. Is that roughly in line with what you would expect, right? And they might come back to you and say that, oh my God, we are now paying a million pounds. That sounds like an absolute bargain. Then you are learning it. Well, maybe we're underpricing and we need to rethink. Um, or they might say, no, 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 we would only spend like 10K max on this, which shows you that it's not a big problem for them to solve. It's not actually about money. You are getting feedback on the product based on their willingness to pay, basically. And I think that would be the trick I would use rather than asking people, oh, how much would you pay? Or like, what's your budget? Which is always very uncomfortable. Instead, you would say that this is what this would cost or this is what other clients are paying. Is that in line with your expectations, right? Um, the other tip I would give to anyone on the B2B world is that you can do expert calls, right? On LinkedIn, you can reach out to people that you want to speak to. You can offer them like either, you know, doing a donation on their behalf or like even like a hundred pounds Amazon watcher to compensate for that time, to thank them for their time. And you can get pretty much anyone on the phone. And then you can ask actually on a structured way, like, okay, so you worked this for this company in the past. Can you just tell me a little bit about like what the budgets were like and how, how did it work and how is it distributed? So you can ask quite structured questions to work it out. I mean, I'm an ex-consultant. I would strongly recommend to anyone that do not even take a single step until you verify, you validate willingness to pay. Amen. All right. I like it. Um, so uh, one of the things that I'd love to get into is you now have a chief product officer, right? Um, when did you decide to make that hire? Because you clearly came in as a founder with a clear understanding of the pain point you wanted to solve, right? And a belief that you could overcome the usability and the feasibility risks. Um, oftentimes, founders have a hard time or at least are reserved about bringing in chief product officers because that basically means handing over the evolution of that problem solving to somebody else. Did you feel that way at all? Um, and when when did you decide, you know, whether you did or did not, was the right time to bring someone in to look after product? No, I, mean, I couldn't be happier. Um, it's, it's, it's a function that needs its own owner, right? At the beginning, as a founder, you also do sales. When I hired my chief revenue officer, I was the happiest person on earth that someone is actually going to take care of it now. And instead, you focus on the future of the business and the three-year future. As a, as a CEO, your job evolves a lot year on year as the company grows. Now, my main job is to make sure that we always stay ahead of the competition. And what I'm working right now doesn't have pretty much any impact on the next six months or even a year. We are already working on the next three years. And again, part of your job is to align all these different teams so that marketing, sales, product, all working towards a single, single goal. You can't do that and also be the chief product officer who needs to go super deep into product, unless you're Elon Musk, somehow he, he seems to manage it. Um, or you go into like the depth of sales and give really good feedback to every single salesperson in the team, etc. You wouldn't be doing a great job at it, even if you tried. The other thing is that a lot of founders don't come from the bottom up on that function. So you actually skipped a lot of the steps and important knowledge, which the person you are bringing in has. So they're going to do a better job anyway, 
in terms of developing the product. However, that doesn't exclude the involvement of a founder in product vision. You hire your team to help you achieve that vision, but the vision still comes from the founder. I think that's great. And I think it's something that's interesting for uh, potential um, CPOs to consider when they're talking to founders about opportunities, right? What does that founder believe is the relationship between the product vision? Who owns that? What's the what's the CPO's job related to it? Is that just to come up with the strategy and create the the culture that delivers that at scale, or um, you know? And and it's some it's a conversation that I think needs to be part of any interview process. Very good point, and that's a lot of work, by the way, like translating a vision that's set as maybe a couple of pages of documents or like, you know, bullet points, whatever it is, to translate that into a strategy, KPIs, a culture in the team to achieve that is is an incredibly hard job to do. And obviously this is very important to be very open. There are obviously some product-based, product background or tech background founders. That's not the case for me. So, of course, if you are working with someone who came from product background, they might want to be more involved in the way you set up the team or how you do your sprints or the culture, et cetera. But from my perspective, that's that's not where I am. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so as you went through your journey, I mean, it's still it's still young, right? Only seven, not even seven years. Has there been a point where you you got scared that maybe you'd made a mistake or you'd made a, a step that, you know, might really consequently impact the, the path forward? You know, has there been any moments of panic or, or pivot for you? Yeah, I think the key thing there was that in the worst case scenario, the maximum I could have raised that would be 12 months with my system of one year milestones anyway, because if I haven't hit a milestone, I would have quit. Right. After, let's say, year three, if I didn't get to where I wanted to be, I would have quit. And yeah, the maximum you would have wasted would be then a 12 month period, which in human life, you know, not the end of the world. That's why it's so important to have those check in points, because you could easily go down a rabbit hole and spend a lot of time. And all of a sudden you find yourself. I spent like six years on this. Oh, my God. What did I do? You don't want that to happen. So to create, you know, I did annually, you could do it six monthly, you could do it quarterly. Um, although I would say that actually annual is a good time frame because you can't achieve a lot in a startup in a quarter or six months. You kind of need to also give it a go, like a proper go, right? So that's why I thought like a 12-month period made a lot of sense. There hasn't been like a point where I thought about, you know, oh, this is not working or did I make a mistake? There has been times where I thought about, I can't continue to work like this. So something has to change, right? And that's really tough. I would always say that most founders absolutely are the worst bosses towards themselves. You end up working pretty like insane hours and, you know, it becomes an obsession, right? Like you want it to succeed. You want to do it well. Then you start feeling like I owe it to the team. I need to work harder and grow faster, And that can be quite dangerous. So that's where you were mentioning, Tiam, at the very beginning, to have the support circles is super important. When I first started, I didn't know a single engineer. I didn't know any other founder or anyone in the startup community. 
It also shows you guys that you can actually start without any network. And then I had to spend a lot of time in the first six months building those networks. Shall I tell you a funny story? It's just between us guys though. Um, so I just didn't know anyone who is in engineering. So I thought like, how, how do I meet some? And this was at the beginning of all the dating apps were getting started. And you know, the early adopters for any new technology is usually the tech community, basically. So I created a profile in Happen where it was talking about my startup and that I'm, I'm hiring uh, Python developers, basically. And it was hilarious because I got a lot of matches <laughs> and I used to go out with, you know, for a drink with like all the intentions clarified from the beginning that I'm looking for a developer, you know, and I actually met so many amazing people through this, which is still a bit of a joke with some of my friends who I'm still friends with, um, but I met through this. I went to Google events in the Google campus, just trying to meet people. And I would say today I'm super lucky that there are like amazing WhatsApp groups, email groups with other founders, CEOs, who we constantly exchange ideas with. And there's an amazing community in London, super supportive. So it would only take you six months to a year to become part of that network. I think that's so important. Uh, and it really, it's something that will stay true throughout your career, no matter whether you're taking the next step to do the founding job or whether you're starting out as a, an entry-level you know, employee at any company. The support network that's there uh, is really important because if you're going to try new things, you're going to fail at certain points. And there's enough reality of things like imposter syndrome um, that it plagues all of us. And so I think something for all of our, our listeners to think about is who is your support network, right? Do you know how to identify your network? And as you're alluding to, it doesn't have to be your LinkedIn followers, right? You can actually actively seek out in the world around you connections. Uh, maybe not everyone's going to use a dating site to uh, find their next engineer, but I mean, Kudos to you for being very ingenuous there. <laughs> it's a great idea. I totally, I mean, you'll choose your ways, but I think one of the things also, your team becomes your immediate um, support network as well. And at Streetbeast, we strongly believe in openness and what we call radical candor, being able to share you know, our thoughts. And this is not only about work-related feedback, but also about emotions and where you are. A startup is an extremely tough experience, right? And there's no reason to deny that. And the more open you are, right? And this is not like constant venting sessions, but I remember only a week ago, I was talking to one of my direct reports on our one-on-one -on -one, and he recently took a new position and he was saying that I'm a little bit overwhelmed. And I said to him that, welcome to the club. To be honest, I just had an anxiety attack like a couple of, couple of days ago, taking deep breaths because so much changed in the last couple of weeks in the team. And I was telling him that what are my coping mechanisms are when I'm really overwhelmed and having like, you know, big anxiety about something. Why, why hide that? Because otherwise people think that, oh, you must be like totally, you know, fine with everything. I'm the only person who is feeling overwhelmed. Of course you're not. We are all feeling that way. And if once in a while we talk about it, it helps everyone. I couldn't agree more. Right. And if you can create that, uh, that, you know, culture of psychological safety, right. That enables people to have those conversations, right. Um, some people, this is a, this is a polarizing name as some people love and some people don't, but you know, Brené Brown has that whole concept of name your shame, right. And the concept is 
speak about what your greatest fears are. Speak about what you're struggling with because generally when you actually voice them, they're much less powerful than when they're stuck in your head and contributing to that next panic attack. And I think finding a culture, if you're going to join a startup, that has a real focus on psychological safety will make that ride easier um, as will building a network that supports you. Completely agree. We do talk a lot about this whole cognitive safety. It's incredibly important either in product, in sales, in marketing, whichever part you are working in, you need to feel safe to be able to take risks. Yes, couldn't agree more. Okay, so final two questions for you. Um, uh, There is, the first one is more strategic, right? You have described a product that I think is really exciting. And I would bet that a lot of people who listen to this are going to start following Streepies if they haven't heard of it, right? Because it's a very inspiring vision. Um, I mean, is it the Google of offline in the future? That's a pretty you know, interesting thing that people want to hear about. It seems to be very heavily predicated on competing in a consumer uh, economy, right? Where consumers have choice about how they spend their time. And you can make, as you said, the ability to capture those data points and then, you know, as you said, work your magic with them to understand the context and and everything. How do you guys approach that in terms of standing out in this world and how much is really involved for the the consumer, the street? I think that would be called the street bee on the bee on the street, right? Um, What do you, you know, how do you focus on that and where do you see the challenges ahead or, or, you know, where are your milestones ahead for making sure you stay relevant? Yeah, such a good question. Um, And that's exactly the reason why you hire people like chief product officers, because it needs focused attention. Otherwise, you can start uh, falling behind. For us, it's all about leveraging the AI technology for personalized conversations on the user side, on the consumer side. Why? Because every personal experience is so unique. And if you think about it, the whole world has been all about trying to fit us into a single box so that they can service us a little bit more easily. But you know what? That actually doesn't work for anyone. That average doesn't fit anyone in the end. This is what the beauty of the technology that's available to us today. We don't have to do that anymore because there are cost-effective ways of giving everyone what they want, right? Which was never possible before. So if you think about that, you come from, you know, research background, Tiama, and the whole surveys were all about, okay, I'm going to write questions. The same five questions will be asked to everyone, you know, and then five answer options are already written for everyone. And I expect the entire world to fill in, uh, to feed in, you know, to that like basically five groups, but the world doesn't work that way. So what we are now working on is that, We ask you something like, how are you feeling right now? And you answer to us in open text, in your own words, maybe a whole paragraph describing what's going on and what's happening in your mind, right? That was already our first step that we took six years ago. Let's free people from multiple choice questions, right? But there was one more step for perfect personalization. Ideally, we should understand what you are telling to us on the fly and change the next question we have in the conversation for you. And that's the really groundbreaking change we are going to be bringing this year, that we are moving our AI to the device, right? We used a lot of our technology in terms of neural networks and topic modeling with NLP on the server side once the data is collected, right? But actually, we now want to do this on the fly. So you tell us, let's say that you used to live with your sister. She now moved to the US. You haven't seen her in ages. 
And on the fly, we can detect there's a sense of loneliness there, but we are not so sure you didn't really use the word. So we ask a follow-up question. Oh, how does that make you feel? And then you maybe say that actually, you know what? I'm really feeling a bit lonely. And then we ask another question. Oh, what makes you say that? Or what kind of actions does that lead to, etc.? So we literally can automate a real human-to-human type of conversation happening to get deeper and more meaningful information from you while giving you a personalized experience so that you don't feel like we are just asking you some framework questions that are not really relevant for you. That's exactly how you stay relevant to the user. Absolutely. I mean, and as you mentioned, I come from a, an insights background and it's the it's the holy grail, right? Because nobody, as you said, surveys, they exist today, but they're generally looked at as being um, a means to an end. You have to do it because there's not a really other good way to do it at scale and at the cost that surveys represent. And what you're talking about, you know, really challenges that notion. The consumer or the street bee, I guess, um, they get out of it. What is it that they get outside of a really nice experience where they uh, maybe feel like creepily understood by their their app that's talking to them? But what's the real value for them? Just to, to be clear, like what do they get out of that experience? This is a really interesting question. When we first started, we thought that it's going to be about the payout cash, basically, right? And we didn't want to go the traditional way of paying people into a wallet and then they accumulate points which they can buy things with. We actually thought that paying people real money into their pocket immediately would be quite exciting, like gamified, right? We're not talking about huge amounts here. It's not an income for anyone, but it's just an appreciation of your time, basically. And it did work really, really well in the sense that when you are eating a burger and having a beer on a Friday night, you take a photo, you share with us, and you know within like 24 hours, you got paid $2 just for like taking a photo of your food, right? It's quite funny, obviously. And that really led to a viral strategy for us that people went out of their way to share, oh my God, there's this crazy company in London which pays you for sharing you know, your food photos, basically. That's how it started. And for many years, we thought that that's why people are doing this. But then something really interesting happened. We needed to find out something for street piece. It wasn't for a client. So we pushed some stories into the app to be filled by the users without a price tag on it. Normally, you would know how much you're going to get paid. So these were like zero. To our surprise, Thousands of people participated. And then we thought, oh, maybe they were confused. So we should send a message and apologize. Like, oh, did you misunderstand us? We are not going to actually pay for this. We were expecting like 10 answers or something, right? And no, people kept sharing. And then we read, and then we asked them, why are you sharing again? Like, we are not actually paying for this, right? That's the good thing about being a research company. You can do your own research very easily. And then we, what we discovered is this inherent need to share. Our data shows that 60% of most Western countries, people are suffering from a level of chronic loneliness. No one is really listening, right? And we build the way that we structure the conversation to make it very clear to the user that we are listening, we are here for them. And there is this need that They want to be able to talk about what's in their mind, what's going on in their lives. 
and share that experience and know that it has an impact on the way that the brands are acting, on the way that we work with, you know, from Department of Health to Office of the Mayor of London. And everything you're sharing with us is being heard, aggregated, summarized, and have an impact on decisions of these organizations. So that was to our surprise that that actually became the main motivation factor. That's amazing. And I, I mean, if we had all the time in the world, I'd love to pick your brain on uh, on that. But we'll have to save that for a future a future discussion. Um, the the second question I'm going to ask you is the fun one that we ask everybody. Um, so, as you know, the people who join us on this show, they were either crazy enough about solving a problem that they built an entire company and, of course, product around it, or they're the heads of product who have to make, um, you know, someone like you's vision come to life, right? So we have a bunch of product geeks here. And so in that world, say there was a museum dedicated to the most important or um, successful products, right? Uh, it's just like, you know, going into a museum to look at natural history, but instead it's looking at what are the products that have played the most pivotal role um, throughout time. And we've had everybody give answers everything from birth control pills to <laughs> the first Land Rover because it stayed the same for all these years to Zoom, right? Um, if you had to pick a few things that you would want to put in that museum, what would you say and why? It's, it's, a, it's a great question. And if you're going as way back as the, you know, birth control pills, etc., and this may come across as like really weird, but I always thought that, you know what? Doors are a great invention because think about it. You want to live in a container, right? So that it protects you from like the heat and the rain, but you got to get in and out of it, right? Like just being in the container is not enough. Like what am I going to do? Like jump and lift up the roof every time? Like that's really inconvenient. So I think it's an absolute brilliant invention that lets you in and out, very easily, you know, every time you want it with no pain. And it didn't change at all. Look at the doors in like pyramids, you know. Seriously. Uh, <laughs> and the doors we use now, I mean, now you have nest and stuff, so you can automatically open your door, but actually it's still a door. And it's not really something we have built a lot on. I think I always thought in a, in a bizarre way, that's an amazing invention. I love that. Uh, this is a shows you a little bit of my dorkiness, but I may or may not have multiple Instagram accounts. And one of them is called All the Doors because I love doors so much. So you couldn't have made me a happier woman. Just now. Um, but, uh, but but any others, because I mean, I don't know, you may not, that might just be a mic drop right there. It's pretty good. But any others that you would think you'd want to put in there? Good question. I mean, look, from a tech product perspective, I think this is not going to come as a surprise. I am obsessed with Notion at the moment, but I think so, is, so, so are a lot of people. And for me, the most important thing is our lives are getting more and more complex. We have more stuff, right, to hold on, hold on to. And I was actually wondering that why isn't one, there, there one place I can put everything that's digital, that's important for me, and it just all lives there and I can search through it. I mean, you can think of Google Drive, but it really didn't do quite the job, right? So I've been quite obsessed with like setting up with my, my Notion. It pretty much runs my life now. I love that. Well, that's a plug for Notion and I would second that too. So um, no shame in that. Okay, <laughs> TJ, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, and we will be all uh, behind Street Bees and looking forward to the success and reaching that next set of uh, 12, 12 month milestones for you guys. 
Thank you so much, Tiama. It was a lot of fun to speak to you and hopefully it will be useful for the product people listening to us today. I can guarantee it. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.